Oh, it's such a good song, Fav. I thought I'd play it twice tonight. We thought we'd just do this <laughs> twice. <laughs> so basically, welcome to the Ian Prendercast, a Carlton podcast brought to you as always by MGA Traffic, your one-stop shop for traffic, transport and waste. We were meant to be going live, but unfortunately there were some technical gremlins um, with our new host, which have precluded us from doing that, which is a massive shame. Um, and this is actually... Technically, it's the third attempt to record this show today because uh, we did start. We went about four minutes and I realised I hadn't pressed the big red record button. So fortunately, I picked it up a lot sooner than the last time I made that mistake, which was after about 45 minutes. So we are getting better. Tim was in the middle of a really, really uh, good point well made. We'll get to him shortly. Uh, I'm Sean Peterbudge. I'm joined, of course, as always, by Faber Ganoush, Fabian Guadagnolo. Last time I saw you, Fab, what were you doing? Let me know. Last time you saw me, what yeah. was I doing? Mm-hmm. Is this the rubber, the rubber glove incident? You were, wearing, the, uh... you were wearing a homemade face mask, which was made by your mother-in-law, which you tried to give me Correct. one. And I told you they have yes. absolutely, they're not approved by any health organization. They're not giving you any coverage. You may as well just be wearing a What colander. are they? P- P- P95 or whatever I were. Yeah, you were wearing one of those. You were wearing rubber gloves and you were using uh, the place, so your place of works. Bins, I was using the, the waste, your own I rubbish. Was using, that's right. I was using the waste facilities because I'm working from home. I can imagine that's I'm, frowned upon by the business. I'm, well, I'm paying rent and not using the office, so I'm I'm using the facilities that I'm entitled to. But anyway, Buenos Aires, I, I don't know if you're entitled to bring your own personal waste and throw that in the bin. I'm not sure no, if that's part of the no, tenant agreement. It's work-related waste that I have accumulated from home. I'm going to tip them off. Just let me know that. Feel free. Feel free. <laughs> you so act, are you actually paying rent though, Fab? Technically, because the offices are still open, we have to pay rent every month. So you getting a discount? No. Nah. Disgusting. Uh, that voice you heard there so, was uh, Tim Davis, Dr. Davis, of course. Uh, how's that homeschooling going for you, Timbo? Yesterday it sounded like you were getting ready to pack them up to boarding school. I, I may have made it sound a little worse than what it actually was, Sean. They've uh, the three boys are doing a sterling job. There's plenty going on, but uh, distractions while you're trying to do what you're trying to do do exist. Um, but I think the one thing that it really just shows is time spent at work. It becomes its own sort of little haven, um, and to be able to sort of switch off and engage in sort of a, a whole new environment, and to not have that. Um, and be home 24-7, you're, you're certainly feeling, you know, that's uh, constancy, I guess, if that's if that's a word. I've heard that, that uh, you're, uh, yeah, it is. I've heard that you're prepared to be patient zero for any clinical vaccine uh, that'll cure COVID-19. You don't care what's in it, how long it takes, what it does to you, so long as it gets the kids back on the school bus, you'll go, put it in me, put it in me now. <laughs> Might might be a little bit of an over-exaggeration, but who knows? <laughs> well, I'm open to offers, Sean. As always, you can find us on Twitter, uh, and we are on Facebook as well, uh, at the Prendercast, all one word. Uh, do get in touch. We love your feedback. We love engaging with you. Um, and when once we go live, uh, that'll become you know a much bigger part of the show, and we certainly encourage you to do that. Uh, you can find all of us individually on Twitter. I'm at Sean Peterbudge, one word. Fab is at Fabiano underscore G7. You post so infrequently, Fab. I get a notification when you do. It says Fabiano underscore G7 has posted for the first time in a while. But it's pure gold. Yeah, I don't know about that. And Timbo, you're inexplicably at Hoff 47. I don't know what that means. 
why you've got that handle, but that's where you are and that's where people can find you. That's where you Great. can find that's where you can find Tim liking and retweeting anti Trump <laughs> Jesus. Ad nauseum. We have this argument with Tim every week or two on the group text. Fabian and I Trump is an idiot, Timbo. We want it on the public record. We've said it to you enough. Yeah, We've said absolutely. it on Twitter enough. Trump is a moron. We are completely in agreement. You don't need to keep ringing us into this. Just reminding, just in case you were unaware. Speaking of idiots, uh, there was a chat this week. We're going to kick off the show now with uh, the talk out of this week. Uh, there was a little bit of chatter that uh, came across the airwaves. I think, well, Tim, you'll agree with this in this COVID-19 work-from-home climate, you do lose track of the days. So I think it was early this week. I think it was Monday. Uh, Sam McClure went on 3AW with Caroline Wilson there as well and uh, basically put the asset on us for the 66-game rebuild. And that started, you know, five years ago um, with great fanfare, with great promise, this is what's going to happen. Now, where we had a chat about it in the initial record that failed, which was really promising and sounded really good. It's a shame that no one will ever hear it. So we want to try to make those points again. But to you, Tim, I suppose my, my not disappointment, but frustration is how literal these media pundits have taken what the 66-game rebuild was designed to do and I suppose how obtuse they've been in recognising what it's actually achieved thus far. Oh, look, I couldn't agree with you more, Sean. Um, I, I guess the time. one caveat is, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually hear the full interview in its entirety. So um, we, we potentially are overreacting to some um, strategically chosen headlines and quotes that have come out of the interview. But to me, the million dollar question is, what were the expectations of this 66 game rebuild? Because at no point has anyone peddled this thought that we were going to have 66 games after going to that first draft and we were suddenly going to be premiers because nobody has a three-year rebuild when you've won a wooden spoon and you've moved on the volume of senior players that we've moved on. Clearly, the 66-game rebuild was about bringing in quality youth that we can build, we can put our own stamp on the player's the style of football we want to play and the organisation and club culture that we want to build. And I think after 66 games, and realistically it's been 88 since, um, or 89 if you want to include round one, since um, Jacob Wiedering got drafted. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you can see Carlton right now are a young, vibrant, um, talented capable group of footballers and the second half of last season proved once you move the weight of the world off their shoulders and that pressure of expectation um, that they were battling under through um, uh, old mate, oh, can't no. remember the fellow's name, Brendan Bolton, Bolt. with Tiggy coming in, once they played with that freedom and allowed to be able to play their own style of game and express themselves the way that they wanted to, there was an exciting brand of football there. And you're still looking at, if, if, if you're using Jacob Wearing as your poster boy, he's now, what, 22 years of age? Mm. Maybe 23? Might have just ticked over to 23. I'm not sure. Actually, he's quite, quite a young one, actually. So he'd still be 22 years of age. And obviously, during the week, they talked about the fact that he's only just hit 100 kilos now. So everything that he's done to date has been about the apprenticeship and the build to be to become ready to be a competitive senior footballer. 
So again, that's the 66 games. That's it's about an apprenticeship to be able to get you ready to be able to make an impact. And obviously, during that stage, we've traded away senior bodies as well. Mm. And the impact of continually going backwards um, as you're trying to progress forward at the same time, and and obviously injuries that we've had along the way to fellows like Sam Doherty have only further scuttled our ability to be putting our best players out on the ground and having the senior heads and bodies support these young kids on their that drive forward. So I, I still just sit there and go, it seems awfully arbitrary. Uh, granted, we, we nominated the 66 games, which I guess we've got to add. But obviously, they've seized upon this purely as a number and said, okay, 66 has, has ticked over, you failed. Well, this because is the thing. Like, when, when I was at Carlton, there was a great... Too arbitrary. Well, I totally agree. When I was at Carlton, um, we, we used to have these little sort of State of the Union type meetings where the heads of every department would get up. And one of the quotes, Mick Malthouse came up and he was talking, uh, it was pre-season, and he basically said, look, we're really excited to get the season started, etc." He loves all his history and war history and philosophy and the like, and he, he made the comment, General Rommel uh, made the quote, or was famous for the quote, no plan survives contact. So we can sit here and draw up, we're going to do this, we're going to go to this many drafts, we're going to have this happen, get this done, blah, blah, blah. And you know, well, realistically, at the end of that, goes what the plan is at the start of the journey, at the end you will have to adjust, you will have to pivot, you will have to you know, look at things that didn't work or did work better than you thought or you need to address. And what, what frustrates me is the media browbeat us to do this. The media browbeat us to, you've got to go to the draft, you've got to start again, blah, blah, blah. And then now that we've done it, they're going to tell us you did it wrong. None of them have built a list. And I just think that it's a frustrating thing to say when progress has been made. Um, Fabian made the point in the first record about what that 66 games actually represented and, and what I suppose we were hoping to get out of it. It's not necessarily wins, as silly as it sounds. You want to win games of footy. But did you want to expand on that point, Fab? Yeah, well, the, the 66 games were... When, when we focus on a rebuild, we focus on... If all attention is and all decisions point to the regeneration of the list and nothing gets in the way of regeneration of the list. Specifically, wins do not get in the way of rebuilding the list. So we make decisions, and we we did this two years ago when we lost Bryce Gibbs. So we lost, effectively that year, he was he had a phenomenal year, his last year at Carlton. So we lost arguably our, our best player and Sam Doherty with the knee going into the next year. We were never going to be a better team than we were the year before in which we were shocking. But we didn't care because we don't keep Gibbs to keep us, you know, marginally, you know, better. We trade him so that we can continue the build without having any obstacles in the road. And sometimes you do have to go back to go forward. And I think that is, that's been missed. But we've also, I don't think people like Tara understand that we have, what we had to start with, the base that we had to start with was, as little as any other club has had to start with before. Mm. We had not, as far as tradable assets, we had nothing. So picks mean when you're, I always liken it to Bucks arrives at Collingwood after Mick. He's got a premiership side. He guts it. And he does a complete list rebuild, but he does it with currency. He gets players like Keith, Keith Shaw and that, trades them off, but gets something back so he can then 
hit the draft, do some trades, and regenerate the list to what he wants. We had nothing, mm. nothing but hitting the draft. And I think Soss hit the draft, especially in those early years, aggressively. And if you look at that first year, that first year, the success rate I thought was phenomenal. We're going to touch on it's that later on, yeah. Yeah. But I just, want to, I just want to hit this. You know, everyone lost. Look, it's a slow, slow news weeks generally breed crap stories, but it's a slow news month. So they've got to, you know, dig and find something that might spark a little bit of interest. And Carlton's always one of those things that generates a bit of news. But in 2001, you could arguably say Hawthorne trade Trent Crowe and get pick one of the... They basically target... They want to get Luke Hodge into the club and start regenerating a list. Now, they can bring in Hodge. They bring in Mitchell. But it's not until 2004 they get the draft again. They get the Buddy, Roughhead, Lewis. They don't win a flag until 2008. And even then, they were, it was a bit premature. They don't mature as a group. And that group is the, the group that started from that 2001 draft. That group starts winning flags in 2013. 2013, that's 12 years later. Well, it's a bit like Essendon, isn't it? The, the famed baby Bombers pinched one. They pinched yeah. the 93 flag. Then they kind of had a couple of years in the wilderness. They weren't bad in 96. And then it took another three years before they were at the top of their game. And, and that's the yeah. thing is that patience and time. Everyone goes, oh, what 66 games. 66 games was about completely resetting every aspect of the club. And I think that... Don't ignore, and, and people in the media, I think, are a bit mischievous when they ignore the successes to come from the process that was started by Stephen Triggs, Stephen Silvani, and Brendan Bolt, in fairness to the lot of them, and then continued by Kane Liddell, Liddell, Kane Little, and his um, revamped footy department. I mean, look at Duck. this. These are the things. You know, um, the path was set and has since been achieved of club record membership. Strong and long-term commercial partnerships have been secured across all levels of the club to give us certainty. We've paid down our debt, and before this coronavirus, looks set to pay it off this year. So that's a bit of a shame. They would have been debt-free for the first time in living memory. Um, they've worked towards a really significant upgrade of Princess Park, and they've secured government funding to get that underway. Hopefully that's not been delayed too much, but that's a significant step forward again. They signed a long-term deal with Puma for 10 years, which is a, was a great get, and uh, obviously just rejuvenated things as well, just a new diff, you know, look and feel. Um, they've improved non-traditional revenues through the Carlton College of Sport and seen growth in the Carlton Business Network. Um, and they've built a strong AFLW program. No club and you go, has what, that's outstanding. off-field what we've done in the position that we're in. No. So on the, off the back of success, Hawthorne have, yeah, strategically and smartly built their brand and, you know, built built the club up to what it is. So is Richmond capitalising on... How many members would we have if we won premierships? It'd be astronomical. There'd be be lockouts. And and this is is from... We've got 60... What We'll say mid-60s at the moment. This is from a fan base that traditionally... Traditionally don't buy memberships. We turn up. That is an excellent point. No, that that is an excellent point. Traditionally, we're not a... The chatter and when I, I was speak. there was, was like that. The chatter when I was there was that, was that idea of Carlton or a wait-and-see fan base. We'll wait and see how we start the year. If we can start the year well, we can add thousands of memberships to the tally. So what you've actually touched on there is, is excellent in the idea of the reset at all levels of the club was to actually change mentalities, how we did things internally, how our members responded, 
our corporate partners saw us, et cetera, et cetera. So I think when people talk about a 66-game rebuild and they go for, I would love to think, and I'm pretty confident in saying, the pain is behind us. Like the really hard yards, they're they're done. We've copped them, we wore them, like so many clubs refuse to, like we used to refuse to, and are now prepared and ready to hopefully take a really big stride forward in what remains of this year and obviously, you know, years beyond. So um, that was something that I think the the most important thing, Sean, we're not, we're not kids anymore. Like they're, they're not, they're not teenagers that are running around. There's a core of guys that are between 20 and 25 when you include some of the players that we've recruited, that the young players that we've recruited for as well. Once upon a time, you know, we had, um, you know, we, we would have too many skinny kids going around that couldn't compete with men. Now, when, you, when you're looking at players of the ilk of Plowman and Marchbank and McGovern, these sorts of guys that have come in by a, by a trade, they've been added to the bigger bodies and the guys that have been able to hold us in good stead in Cripps and Cruiser and Murphy and Jones and Casbolt. But these quality kids that have now blossomed, you know, Mackay and Kerno when he's fit, Weedering, you know, we've added Jack Martin now this year as well, you know, on top of the Petrovsky seat and Cunningham. You know, the quality is there. It's we're, you know we're, the, now, we're now at the stage they've just got to play. Well, you just know who get the them case out on the field, is, get Tim. them playing together. You, you mentioned you mentioned the case in point is for the, the poster boy for all of that was Jacob Weedering and his performance in round one. Yep. That's the poster boy. That's this whole process in a nutshell. Summed up. One, just, one avenue we haven't gone down either, and this is where you'll get your exponential improvement, is we haven't hit free agency yet because we have resisted the temptation to I'm pretty confident. try and get a quick we'll, we'll get Papley. Right? But we've got a war chest. Right, well, people don't understand what it's not like in your Premier Leagues where you've literally your bank cash and just go out and splash it. We've got our salary cap in such a healthy position now that we can attack free agencies. Yeah, we've missed out on a couple, but I reckon it's only going to serve us better in the long run now that we've got that base of kids that when we inject absolute quality players like Jack Martin, that we've got for next to nothing, through the roof. No, totally. Uh, totally. As you say, the, the, the longer you, you let the development run, you also understand where your gaps are as well. You know, when, yeah. when you've got guys that have, have um, made positions their own, you can then start looking going, well, can we upgrade in this position? Can we upgrade in that position? Or, or you know, where, where is, where is our, our biggest um, failing? Um, and as you say, if it does end up being the situation that Tom Papley is our most needed option, you know, we go get him, we trade whatever we've got to trade to go to get him and we make the deal happen. Absolutely, absolutely. The, obviously, the other big yep. piece of news to come out of the club in the last little while, Charlie Kurnow's had a, another setback. We've lost count of how many setbacks he's had just at the moment, which lends a little bit of credence. I'm not really totally sure the transparency about this injury we've we've spoken about, so I'm not really sure how this all factors in, but we take the club on face value naturally. Um, the strangest thing to come out of this setback was the hysteria. So... Charlie, at this point in time, has missed one match. Like, we've got to, got to have perspective, we've got to be realistic. He's missed one game. So, if he ends up missing this truncated, you know, condensed season, for the betterment of his long-term and our long-term, not a what problem in the world. Not a problem in the world. Put him on ice, and I think that's what we need to do. I would have liked to have seen the club put a line through him for this year. 
Just nip Do you remember our pre-season predictions? I, I think I predicted pre-season he wouldn't play. I think that was my what is it, a big, call, big call. Yeah. Can I upgrade my big call? Yeah. Do it. Brody Kemp will play a senior game of AFL football before Charlie Turno does. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's, I, I think you're probably right. I reckon Brody Kemp could play this year. The well, way we're looking, it depends how long the season goes. Yeah, depends how long the season goes. He did the injury in July, and you hear a lot of people say, you know, some people talk about you can get back from an ACL in eight months, nine months, um, but most of the time, clubs like to take the full twelve months just to be sure. You know, it's the old, you know, give it ten months and just wait two more just to be to, to be uh, to be sure. Um, if if we're going to have a season that's going to go beyond September because of the hiatus that we've taken, if we're sitting there in August and we've got six games of footy to play or whatever else that it is, as you say, even if you only give the kid one game, just to let him see and feel the pace and all that sort of stuff, give him the game. But he'll have done over 12 months recovery. A lot of people would say, well, why would you risk him for that one game? Why don't you just let him roll into another preseason, let him come out at the start of next year? But I think as we're sort of finding, you know, in this coronavirus environment, when you're doing the same thing all the time, you just need a change of atmosphere. And if there isn't going to be a second level of football to be able to play, it's not like he's playing a little bit of, you know, quarters here and there in the VFL. You've got to give the kid something as opposed to just running around in the rehab group, ad nauseum, practicing his handball, standing on a balance board. And that's, I suppose, we're all kind of seeing what it's like to be around... Sorry, Sean, to be, like, if you're in the rehab group, like, us being in, you know, isolating at home and working from home and being away from the norm, you don't like it. Like you said, you miss you miss going to work. You miss, you know, speaking to your workmates and, and, and basically living, as you said, a second life when you're in the rehab group and doing that. It'll be exactly the same thing, so... Maybe even giving the kids something to aim for. I'm not saying you have to play, but say, don't write off your shit. This did start yeah, off as a conversation about Charlie Curnow, just quietly. We've somehow managed to turn it into a <laughs> yeah. two-hander with Brody Kemp. Um, just the thing with Kemp, I suppose. Can, can, me, I, can I just say something about yes. Charlie, though, Sean? Please. I think the one thing that has been lost in, the, in, again, our media hysteria, his operation has seen him put a screw in the, in the, the kneecap, as I understand it, and he had wires that held it together. And obviously, if he split the patella in two, what, he, what they're wanting to see is they're wanting to see pressure to be able to hold the bone together and to allow it to knit. Correct? Oh, <laughs> Dr. Davis here. You're, 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 you're the doctor, mate. <laughs> you're but the fake doctor what, in this chat room. That's clearly what they're... So what he, he's had the operation to remove the wires and then they've done a scan to be able to see if the bone has knitted. They've sat there and said, it's done what we've asked him to do. He's then gone home and obviously started doing a weights program and he's feeling soreness in the knee. That's to be expected after the surgery that he's had. It's not like he was doing squats at home and the patellas snapped in two again. He's to, all he said is, I felt pain. And they said, if you're feeling pain, back it off. And whether they would have gotten it re-scanned or whatever, they've obviously just said, you can't be too aggressive with it. We're going to um, handle you with kid gloves. We're going to take a softly, softly approach. We're going to get everything right. And then you're going to be okay to put the load on later on. It's April. 
in a season that we were always thinking there was going to be missing a significant portion of. As we said, there is no there is no harm in waiting until he's right. And again, it hasn't been a setback. He's just trying to move forward and he's feeling pain. I really wouldn't I really wouldn't be saying get rid of him, he's done, trade him, well, get this, as much as this you is can the for point, him, that's what the media's telling us. Well this is the point, Timber. This is the frustrating thing to come out of this whole chatter. Could we find another player of Charlie's age and potential on the market and could we get him? No. No. So the conversation's over. This idea of should we cash the, in? The only guy the only guy floating around now Cameron. Um well no, I was gonna say it was Patty McCartan as, as far oh, as a guy Jesus who's Christ, available. Timbo. No, to say that he Jesus. is available. You could get him in the now. But as you say, to be able to replace somebody like a a Charlie Turno, you are you are looking to be paying a one point two million dollar a year contract to be able to get somebody in like a Jeremy Cameron. He is and at the moment say, for us. Know, he at Charlie Kerner for us just at this point in time, he's priceless. His potential Correct. is is so you, you great. would never get what he's worth in a trade coming back the other way. It, it, it's exactly the same discussion as what we had with Joe Danaher. You know what Essendon were wanting to get in a trade for Joe Danaher was never ever going to be worth what they rated him as, and they weren't prepared to do a deal that felt what they were selling him for less, and front up to their supporters and say we've done the right thing. If we had if we put Charlie on the market, <clears throat> there'd be seventeen clubs. Yeah, there would be. There'd be 17 clubs knocking on the doors. What can we give you? What can we do? And that's the reality. We don't need to trade him, least of all now. Any chat that we should, it just needs to be shelved. It's absolutely ridiculous. So, look, I think that'll be it for him for 2020, which is fine. We look to 2021. I think most people will look to 2021 regardless. Um, and on Brody Camp, obviously, look, if, if the opportunity presents for him to play a game in the back half of the year and he's fit to do it, there's the opportunity for him to do it, go for it. You know, not a problem in the world. That'd be, that'd be exciting. It's always exciting to see, you know, your blue chip pick uh, come through. Uh, and then finally, the other big or most significant <clears throat> uh, piece of news from the week, uh, Virgin Australia obviously went into voluntary administration and that affects us as Carlton fans and, and the football club. They're the uh, co-major sponsor of the football club just at the moment. We naturally have to wait to see how it plays out and whether they're able to stay on board, in a position to stay on board, whether they can honour their contract and we can honour our arrangement. I actually choose to see this as a glass half full. And I, I spoke to Fab about it off pod a, a day or two ago and used the example many years ago, Manchester United set up. It was sort of unprecedented at the time. They, we've spoken about it. They branded up everything. They branded every asset the club had. When they ran out, they made more. Slap, you know, United logos on them. They got official telecommunications partners in Azerbaijan and mattress partners and official potato chips. It's absolutely ridiculous. But what they Mr. did Potato. is, Mr. Potato, what about Casido del Diablo? The official, what is that? Is that a wine? That's a wine. Um, the official wine. But, any, but it, the whole point was they went for the training kit and they said, we'll brand that up. So DHL came on board as the official training kit supplier, or partner, I should say. They couldn't honour the contract. Something happened. What a, United walked away from that deal, having shown the asset was worth more than they sold it for, and signed on Aon for more ended up making more money out of it. So the point I'm making is we are in a better position now. As I said, memberships are up. The Carlton College of Sports going great. The Carlton in Business Network's really strong. We're a more attractive proposition for a potential sponsor now than we were when Virgin signed. And didn't Virgin sign as a bit of a 
bit of a partnership with the AFL yes. because one career one. We've had some bad luck. And Dimitri went past. We had some yeah. bad luck with the the away game. The co-major sponsor. I just don't want to see another, you know, another sticker job oh. on the kit. One of them looked all right. We had uh, Lavazza looked okay. Oh, if Lavazza can just jump on board, Lavazza seems to make sense. Like it seems so it's obvious. Very good too. It'll look so good. It would look amazing. Is this one of those sponsors that you know you hear like the Bulldogs signed a, a thing with Pal? I think it was, and you're like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> like it does you go? Looks, it's just you know, it makes. It's every mark. He's sitting there going, Lavazza. You go on Lycon Street, Coffee Culture. You go, it makes perfect sense. They're also worth an extraordinary amount of money. You know, I've had my eye on one corporate partner for a while, Fab. Yep, SAP. SAP. Like the way it looks. Well, it just it looks fantastic, and more importantly, they've got a long storied history of sponsoring sport, so they clearly see value in it, and they're enormous. They're an enormous multinational company. They had something with Essendon, actually, a really small. Partnership with Essendon. Get to work, Sean. I'm going I'm sure, to. Uh, Mark Legitice will appreciate your phone call saying that I've landed a I've landed twenty-five a... million dollar a year. <laughs> twenty-five million dollars a year. He'd go, Jesus. Where? Who are they? Um, but yeah, so look, that's the version stuff. Like I said, is is I choose to look at it as a as a glass half full opportunity for the club. It's not ideal that they have to re-enter the market and, and potentially a volatile market in the wake of COVID nineteen for a new co major, but. Um, there is a potential out there to come out of this no worse off and perhaps better off, which, uh, which like I said, is an opportunity for the club. Um, that's, I suppose, the chatter from around the traps uh, with regard to club news. And we thought, whilst there's no footy to talk about, we'll pivot and do sort of feature discussions. This week's discussion is based around the most significant moments of uh, the AFL era for the Carlton Football Club. And we're going to work through them chronologically, obviously starting in 1990 with the rebrand. Technically, it sort of started in 87, but... From a naming point of view, obviously, 1990, the AFL kicked off. Um, <clears throat> we're going to go 1991. Relatively big moment. Not sure if we'll make our final top threes. We're each going to have a top three at the end of this segment. But David Parkin returned to Princess Park, obviously having left uh, at the end of 1985. And funny story, I, don't know, I think it was on um, uh, Open Mic or John Elliott spoken about it in the past. Parker was a bit cut up, as you would be when you lose your job, and he's leaving, and Elliot said to him, nah, you'll be back. You know, like in a way, he goes, we're letting you go now, but you, there'll be, you'll come back. There'll be an opportunity for you down the line. And as it was, there was. You know, he, <clears throat> he came in, he brought with him some acumen, some intelligence, and he was actually precisely the right man to usher in the new generation and mesh them with the old, to bridge the late 80s with what ended up being the 95 flag. Yep, and also uh, you know, he brought in a new a new new era of fashion with the uh, the khaki pants, the uh, oh the polka dot tie, the, the navy the polka dot tie, and the uh, the blue blazer. They had the so, they had the sky at one point. They had a sky blue shirt, khaki pants, polka dot tie, and a navy blazer. It was absolutely atrocious. I'm not sure who was looking at that going. That's the look. That's the one. It was very country road at the time. It was. Thought. It was unbelievable. I think I actually might, uh, I actually might try to hunt it down and, and go to a game wearing it when we can eventually go. <laughs> when we can eventually go to football. The oh man! The preseason, the preseason intra club against the Pies. My dad was rocking a very he was mid nineties Carlton coaching uh, stuff. Yeah, mate, it caught Tony's eye all those years you, ago. You know, all three of us could go to a game 
sitting there and dressed exactly the same way and just see if somebody actually knows what is this? Could be. It well, could genuinely be and, and it could almost if you could get if it could grow legs, it could almost be like everybody dressed as Benno at the Sydney. You <laughs> Sydney know the, the funny thing is we posted something about it on the Twitter not long ago and a lot of people like it 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 hit with them. They were like totally get it. Totally remember it. Yeah. Parker made it his own. But look, that was obviously a great get. He came back, was able to control the big personalities in the locker room, usher through that next gen, would win a third flag for him personally in our 16th flag, took us to two more grand finals, um, and was ultimately named our coach of the century. So in the end, his coming back was a big win for the club, for him personally, for us, and is clearly a significant moment. Number two comes from the same offseason. Greg Williams decided to come down. Uh, we turned him down in 82 and 83. He trained with us and we thought he was too fat, too slow, not good enough. Um, and he ultimately proved us to be complete mugs, um, something that we would be in the trade and draft market for most of the next 25 years, to be brutally honest. He served He served from memory a five or six game suspension C5. at the start of the 92 season. Yep, so he was deregistered um, and... But you the deal, obviously looked into it. So we traded Simon Mitten Connell to the Swans and Peter Sartori and Ashley Matthews to Fitzroy, whilst the Roy sent Darren Kapler to Sydney. <laughs> Sydney, and we ended up getting Greg. There was probably some cash, to be brutally honest. There was probably something. I, I can, I can. Well, I'm already picturing Pete listening to this pod. Oh, Darren and as soon as you mentioned Peter Sartori, the, the, the and, and Darren Kapler and all this. The memories flooding back. All good ones. Dude. But they wouldn't be good. Only good They'd ones. be stuff like Darren Kapler running down the wing and tripping over himself or something. It'd be, wouldn't but, be... Yeah, but Pete but Pete would love that. He It'd would be awesome. He wouldn't it wouldn't yeah. be like, oh, I kicked a game winning goal or he took a great courageous mark. It was it'd be the time he ran into him at the train station or something. It's people like we, we often talk about it on pod and it's a calm podcast, but we Pete loves the dark days of Fitzroy almost more than he loves the three seats. He does. He has his special <laughs> Early 2003 peak it. premierships. It's hilarious. Yeah. So, look, Greg Williams coming was ultimately a signal of intent. We'd had three years outside the finals, and whilst we missed the finals in his first year in 92 on percentage, it was a final six. Uh, we won 14 matches. Missed the, missed the six on percentage. He ends up winning a Brownlow, a Best and Ferris, an AFL uh, PA MVP. Norm Smith, the premiership. He's in our team of the century. He's in the AFL or VFL team of the century. He's in both Hall of Fames. He's an absolute superstar and was a significant yep. piece of what would happen with he, us in the mid-90s. He was top 10 in the league at the time, clearly. And top he 10? joined... Top 10? Jesus. I, I, I'm going conservative. Hold who's on. A, who's ahead of him? Matthew, huh? <laughs> he, he, joined, he joined a core of other players who were in and around that mark. I'm talking about your Bradleys, your Silvanis. People forget in 91, 91 is when Mick Sheen started his top 50. And the mm-hmm. first ever top 50 for Mick Sheen in 91 was Sticks. It was Sticks. Yeah. So Diesel and Sticks would have been in the top handful of players in the comp. Yeah. So to acquire someone of that talent, was you could tell it was, was going to instantly make us better. And it did. You know what else it is too? It's a bit of a, and we're going to touch on this later with another big name acquisition. It's always a bit of a dick measuring contest when you can get a big free agent. So it gives the fans a bit of strut, a bit of swagger. You've been able to lure the big name. And it's sort of for a team like us at that time, <clears throat> we'd missed the finals three years in a row. What are they doing? Where are they going? They're done. They're old. They're aging. No, we still can get the best player in the game. 
Absolutely. Uh, number f- the next one, I should say, there are no numbers. It's chronological. Uh, the 1994 final series. So we've bunched in sort of 93 with this because for me anyway, they're equally as important. 93, we have an okay year, finish equal top. Lose, uh, lose a, a grand final that was there to be won. 94, we're probably the best team in the competition. I think we played the best football, but I think West Coast, West Coast had that. There, there were four. It was us, West Coast, North, and Geelong. Geelong, yeah. But when so we were Coast, when we were at our best, I think we probably could have taken them. I think you're right. Um, I, I think West Coast proved in '93 that going back to back is a, an extremely difficult task, and um, and and they weren't ready in '91. They were clearly the best team in '92. You don't drop off the face of the earth. So, you know, they were, they were still a very good side in '93, but backing up is challenging. Obviously, they got their shit together in 1994, but were playing their best football at the right time. And credit to them, they won a premiership as a result of it. And it just proves that when, when you are good, you've just got to take opportunities. And for us, 94, we were good enough to be able to win a flag. I always thought as a supporter, that was the year we were going to win the flag. You, you know, we went awfully close in 93, but we were never ready. Um, and they always say you got to lose one before you can win one. So 94, we were primed for it. Didn't take the opportunity. Unfortunately, as we'll talk about further, 95 came along. But it really felt like because of the, the list, we had in the age that we were at, that was our one and only opportunity and we went out in straight sets. And and it straight sets badly as well. And that's mm. the thing. Like, you look at the numbers. Um, we won, <clears throat> won 15 games. We were one game off top. We were two clear in second. We had a relatively straightforward path through to the prelim. That was the first year of the, uh, was it the McIntyre system, the final eight? So we played seventh yep. place Melbourne for a spot in the prelim. And you go, well, let's take that every day of the week. At the end of the day, yep. we lose our final three matches of the season. Essendon in round 24 costs us top spot. Uh, we lose to Melbourne, and then we lose to an undermanned Geelong in the semi. So you could sort of sit there and go, at the end of the day, you mentioned this final series to fans of a certain age, and you're going to get any range of emotions from depression, just heartbreak, anger, embarrassment. But what it did do, and Parkin has spoken about this at length, it galvanises what comes next. And I don't know if 95 happens, if 94 and 93 happen, don't happen the way they did. Yeah. There's yeah. so much I, ownership. I There's so much ownership that goes to the group, and that's clearly next on the on the chronological order of the 95 season. Um, it's the greatest season in the club's history, clearly. Champions across every line. They atone for the failures of the last couple of years. The build that had been uh, happening since Parkin's arrival at the club um, paid dividends and, and we obviously ended up taking home the premiership comfortably. Everyone was waiting for the club to fall over. You're going to do it again. You've done it the last two years. It'll happen. You're old. You're not good enough. Didn't lose a game at Princess Park. Won 16 in a row. Won the flag. And there was some... I reckon, as, as you've pointed out, Sean, the off-season would have... Some home truths would have been, would have been said and some changes were made, especially with the mix and especially the midfield mix. I think we went a lot younger. Yep. We've blooded a few players like you know, Camperiali and Whitehead come to mind who were, no, we need an injection of youth, of, you know, a bit of pace, a bit of, you know, a bit of excitement. Put it in there. 
Rats, Fraser Brown, these guys are empowered to, no, you guys have to take the club forward and then your diesels are going to be the ones who put the icing on the cake. And those seasoned you, guys... You also had... So you also had Matt Clappay come in, you had Dean Rice come in, you had Glenn Manton come in, and that was just recognising about building solid depth. And they were all talented footballers, but they also had a hardness and a competitiveness that went with it. And, and we also, a couple of guys that were already on our list but genuinely blossomed that year were Ange Christo and Anthony Kudafidi. So Is he? You, you, it, it's unbelievable that you... It seemed every element of the team all seemed to... And, and Brad Pierce was a guy that we traded for earlier as well. He he found his groove. Uh, James Cook played some good footy during the year. Could then get a game in the team. Um, you know, come James Cook scored our... Only goal. He scored our first goal against St. Against Kilda. St. Kilda. So, in the, the game that we got beaten by at Bethel Park. Yeah, it was a freezing cold day there too. Yeah, How's that any day. different to any other day out at VFL Park? It's always yeah, freezing. They decided true. to build it in an Arctic belt. An extraordinary <laughs> decision. Uh, so, look, 95 is a sensational year. Obviously, our last premiership win. Um, and, like I said, just champions all over the park. It was fantastic. We skipped forward a couple of years. Obviously, 99 prelim and grand final. Now, this chat has been done to death. And this is sacrilege for a Carlton fan to say. I'm kind of over the 99 prelim. I'm kind of sick of it. I want something new. Yeah. It's a great day. We need to replace it. It was a great day. I mean, at the end Without of the day, standing. if we'd won it, if we'd gone on and won the premiership, it would mean that much more. But the fact that we didn't win the flag, you sit there and you're going, you're celebrating something that just, it didn't actually bear fruit. It was a great day and it meant a lot, but it didn't bear fruit. And it's, it's the sort of thing a St Kilda supporter would hang their hat on going, played really well in a preliminary final. When you're a Carlton Football Club supporter and we've won 16 premierships and you value success and you know you arrogantly display all 16 cups in the foyer and all that sort of stuff, remembering and celebrating a preliminary final win that doesn't lead to a grand final, to me, smacks of, that's not the Carlton way. One of the best days of my life, don't get me wrong, but I want more. Yeah, totally. well, I think that's what it comes back to. What I will say is, in isolation, yeah, I, I, I'm almost in chorns, but it's because it's one of those things, just put it away for a while. Yeah. And then when you yeah. do revisit it, it's it's so much more. But it's probably, we go into that, that game, you know, it's, it's quoted in the commentary during the game that, you know, even Parkin said we were a second-rate side during the year. But it, it almost gave us the belief to then go on. And that 2000 season, we've gone from being an average side the year before to be clearly the second best side in the comp. And with a full team, potentially able to give Essendon a run for their money. So it's, it, it was a good, it was a a launching pad. And I totally agree. And that's why I think for me, it's on the significant list. Not in, because of the result, but there's such a potent nostalgia behind that day that we kind of forgive and forget what happened the next week. We didn't play terribly the next week for two and a half quarters. We we're actually quite all right. Um, just a couple, you know, Corey McKernan flicked the switch and Peter Bell had a great day and um, they were just a little bit too good for us. But it's important and significant in two ways. A, it's because it's the last time we played that late in the season. And B, because of what Fab just said, it led led to what came next. And what came next was potentially um, some of the very best football that has ever been played 
by a Carlton side. So does that happen without 99 and that kick of belief to that younger core or your Rattans and your, um, your Camparelli's taking a bit more control, Cuda growing into himself and finally he's 25, 26 and he believes I can do this, I can cut it. 2000 was an absolutely outstanding team. I've been re-watching a lot of it to uh, put together a passion project of mine, a video series, which you've seen a little bit of. And we were unbelievably good. I'm looking for clips to cut up for these videos and you find yourself just watching the games. We were so good. We had five All-Australians. That was a league best. Essendon had four. We won 16. The thing that stands out, whilst whilst Cuda Cuda obviously stands out, he was the best player at the club at the time. Lance, and people laugh. I hate when people look back on Lance's career and laugh. You know, know, fat farms and, you know, he was too big to get around and what have you. He was great. He was taking the piss. He was taking the piss early 2000. He was so good. He was phenomenal. So we phenomenal won We won 16 games. We haven't bettered that since. It's our sixth best return in terms of wins and losses in any given season. We're 13 in a row, which is our third best run of all time. We had Ross Lyon, Woosher, Britton, Parkin in the coach's box. No doubt, you know, no wonder why we were an outstanding team. I think um, one of the other stats I came across when making these videos, and, and that'll be mentioned again, is only once, uh, only one other time in our history have we scored more. That was in 1979. So we were seriously good, brilliant team, um, and it was great to watch, and hopefully some fans during this downtime can go back and watch it. Uh, we ultimately didn't salute, but it was a significant season because of, of how good we were. And I think sometimes that gets lost in... What's come next? Um, what also came next? Two more significant moments from that that year. Cooter's knee injury. Now, this isn't the knee injury that really curtailed him. It ultimately was serious enough uh, at the time of the season. He got it to rule him out for what remained of the season. He did return in 2000. This was the media, wasn't it? Yeah, so he returned. Was this the media? PCL. PCL. Yeah, PCL. It, was a, it, was a, it, it was a contact injury. Was he in the rut or was he going for Jason a marking Johnson. contest? Or? So he and, he and Jason Johnson went knee on knee. And look, he, he ended up coming back. He won the BNF in 2001. So he played some great footy. But it was the beginning of the end. He signed his long-term contract, $5 million over five years. Reportedly, reportedly, very heavily back-ended. And this just became an albatross around our necks. As the seasons and the years wore on, we just really, really battled to carry that salary. And then as Cooter's influence waned... Um, you know, it was, it was just a, a convalescence of events that was just so unfortunate for everyone involved. We had the best player in the game who was cut down in his prime and was never able to be that player again who just happened to be on unprecedented money. Yeah. You know, we ended up, um, he ended up taking a pay cut, though. Credit to him. I think he took a 20 25% pay cut uh, a couple of years later, um, which obviously he didn't. I think he just extended, he extended the contract by a year, but for no additional money. Which he just didn't so have to do. It became a $5 million contract over six. Yeah, and that, look, that's... It just spread, it spread those two back-ended years across three, and it just made it that little bit more, a little bit easier to manage. From my recollection at the time, there was a an error that was made. They had the veterans, they had like a veterans um, allocation or whatever, where you could put half your money for a veteran for up to two veterans on your list, and it would sit outside of the salary cap. And I think Carlton and Essendon, and potentially Brisbane as well, had stuffed up the ages of their players when they became eligible, and they thought that some of that doesn't sound like us, Timbo. Sit outside of the salary cap, 
and, and, and Essendon did the same thing with James Hurd. And I've a funny feeling Boss may have been involved as well. But it, it was actually triggering, triggering a year later than they realised. They had to turn 30, had to have already turned 30 before the season started. And it kicked in a year later. And evidently that was part of an, you know, an issue for us. Failing to look at the paperwork, that, that doesn't sound like uh, us at all. What are you talking Unlike about? Unlike Carlton, yeah. <laughs> uh, the other significant moment from the 2000 season or the 2000 year came on draft night. So we come into the 2000 draft on the back of a couple of really, really good years, albeit with an ageing list, but presented with an outstanding opportunity to rebuild and go again. Having traded our first three picks in 1999, we entered the 2000 draft with picks 4, 11 and 15. Actually, 4 came from Aaron Hamill, 11 came from Justin Murphy. We ended up leaving the draft with Luke Livingston, Trent Spawn and Simon Wiggins. So only one of those guys plays 100 games for the club, and, and Wiggy was obviously an excellent clubman, um, but it ought to have been a platform platform for us to look to replace or hopefully replace Brattles, Sauce, and really sort of go again and, and just sort of basically get a free whack, especially in that year, in that era. And they just mm-hmm. fucked it up badly. Yeah. Where you look at a year later, Hawthorne, People forget they didn't finish last. You know they traded for the for the first pick. Hawthorne go into that draft, pick up Luke Hodge and Sam Mitchell, and start. You know they are basically the two pillars on which they build their well, know, their premiership. For top. us, the two thousand draft was very much an exclamation point on a couple of years of pretty bad drafting. Like I said, ninety nine we traded away all those picks. We we brought in was it. Um, O'Reilly and Mansfield, and, and Mansfield was okay. I think we only traded pick 30-odd for him, so that's that's not a bad deal in isolation. But the year before that, you know, we take Murray Vance at pick six. I mean, Chris Massey was, was in there at a pretty high pick as well, and you just went, well, we didn't really show either of those guys a whole lot of patience and time to develop, and they get shifted on, and we've ended up spending two high picks that needed to replace that ageing list. And 2000, like I said, was just the... It was just the turd on top of the cake, really, of the poor era of drafting. Um, 2002 comes around, and this is this is a big one, uh, a lot of facets to it. So we've sort of packed it all into one. The salary cap scandal, you know, in isolation, it was near enough to a million-dollar fine. We lost three top five picks over the course of two years, uh, stemmed from, you know, under-the-counter payments to a number of players, Stephen O'Reilly being one of them. Um, just inexplicable why that's he's been the guy that's, you know, it's like, uh, what was that bit in The Wolf of Wall Street? Where, you know, been bought down by a chain of hibachi restaurants. So we've been bought down by Stephen O'Reilly. It wasn't even like we were bought down to bring in a superstar. Fucking hell. Benny Hanna. Benny Hanna. Because <laughs> I'm never going to go there, not even if it's someone's birthday. But um, <laughs> ultimately, what we, what we... As time's gone on, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, Timbo. As time's gone on, I've actually softened on the influence of this whole situation. I mean, personally, I look at it and go, as we've outlined there, we'd blown a hole in our list regardless. And Brendan Goddard and Daniel Wells weren't going to fix that. Well, I, I think what was key of the year, and I've said this numerous occasions, and you'll you'll probably know what I'm going to say. We were a million dollars over the salary cap, and we won the wooden spoon. So how bad were we going at managing our list and recruiting our players. I mean, we were we were clear, clearly valuing the wrong things, and and what you know whether it was a little bit of bad luck or whatever, or you know guys that we just thought were going to come on didn't. 
Um, we've been blessed for a long period of time being able to build around some, you know, amazingly, you know, great key planks. And once they were gone, we were a little bit rudderless. We just needed a little bit like what you said about the Luke Hodges. You just needed somebody to come in and just take over and, and dominate and lead by example and all that sort of stuff and set the culture and expectations. Do you reckon we and, were too beholden we were, you know, though? Do you, do you reckon we were too beholden to, like, if you look at the guys who were getting the cash, great yep. servants of the footy club, a number of them, and were being looked after, and they, you know, quite a few of them are, are legends of the footy club. And if they're not, they're very, or were very good players for us. Do you reckon there was an element of over-rewarding, over-compensating guys who had been great servants of the club and we needed to look forward? We will kind of, if you're going to cheat, if you're going to pay people under the table, pay the right people. Well, I think there was that. And I, I think John Elliott, as you sort of say, he was so... I think he'd probably done a few sweetheart deals along the way. He, he'd sort of, I think John, in a way, had he tried to do the right thing for a while and he tried to stay under the salary cap and he'd say, well, I'm going to pay you now, but I'm going to pay you blokes later. We'll find a way. And, you know, it won't be a big contract this year, but next year you'll get looked after. And I think in the end, it's just the way that it feels to me. I, I know absolutely nothing, but it's just the way that it feels. And it just felt like, because there was always talk that Silvani said, I was still owed money, yeah. and, I, and I think maybe there'd been a, a there'd been a I think there'd been a conversation had that yeah you'll get another three hundred next year or something like that, and I think because of the way things played out, promises that were made, I don't reckon Soss ever got his full back. I, I, I genuinely believe that. But do you reckon? Again, do you reckon you they're all sitting there going, "Well, how are you going to pay us all?" Like whatever. And John Elliott just produced two sets of books. Yes, we put a set of fake numbers in this one. And we actually do the real accounting in this one. And then... I don't just... know why we do real accounting if no one's ever going to look at it. I mean, I guess, as you say, you kind of got to know, you know, at, you know, how the business is going and you're making money and all that sort of stuff and what, you, what levers do you need to pull to make sure you're doing it right. But, yeah, I, the, we, we're smacked of arrogance in that yeah. era. And, you know, the, just the shame is, the shame out of all of it is there was a preparedness to pay money exactly as you said before, Sean, but we were just targeting the wrong sort of player. Yeah. You know, yes, you know, we, we, we sort of proved to ourselves when, when we did the the, um, the the Carlton draft of how do you find a good fullback? Mm. Um, you know, they are very, very few and far between. So obviously we kind of said we need to replace Silvani. Let's um, let's get Stephen O'Reilly on board. He's the man. And so like, no, nah, he ain't the man and he's going to sing like a canary. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're just we're just unlucky on a couple. There's a lot of, of crosses there. I've sensed a lot of lot of crosses against his name. A lot of red ink. But no, and I totally agree. You go. I've got nothing wrong with recognizing and rewarding these great champions. But we shouldn't be paying top dollar to a 34 year old, 35 year old guy. Yeah. You know that's that's the last yeah, we, dance. We want to speak about you know very very briefly the whole thing there with the salary cap and the way they were managing it and this that and the other. You, you protect the pieces that are going to move you forward not the ones that have been yep. champions. So obviously the other big moments to come out of that, and this is why it's it's one moment in and of itself, caused a bit of a civil war. John Elliott gets ousted, loses his name off the, off the stand as a result. And ultimately I think that civil war was more damaging than the final of the picks because we were very rudderless yeah. in terms of leadership. You, I reckon you're 100% correct because we're at a point like it was – the AFL had changed. It was like it fully changed. The, the turn of the century saw it, it became more of a business model. It was less philanthropic 
which is what Carlton were very based on, and it became more of a, a business. And we just got hit at the wrong time when we, our list was at the lowest it had ever been, and then all of a sudden we get hit. And as you said, Sean, even if we kept those first couple of picks, we were in a hole. Now, people, you know, we're the butt of a lot of jokes, and that's fine. I don't really give a shit. But what, three or four years earlier, in 99, Melbourne were fined nearly 700K, and they were stripped of, you know, first-round picks for a number of years. But yes, their indeed. list was at a point, yeah, people forget that to get Joe Gutnick in. Or Essendon were in 90, was that 96? They were fined 350000 in 96. Mm. But their lists at the time, Melbourne play off in a grand final a year later. Yeah. Essendon have got the core, the baby bomb. Good team. Through to the, we were just in the shit. And because we had been, we were so poor, then the finger pointing and the name, you know, as Sean said, the Civil War had started, we imploded. We imploded yeah. as a club. We needed someone to come in and lead us and they were squabbling over control and who's to blame and and the like. And that, that set us back, I think, further than the fines of the players did. But look, Dennis obviously arrives. Uh, we win our first spoon in that season with Britain at the helm. There's just a lot of deck chairs on the Titanic, really, at that particular time. And, and as we keep on saying, to, to labour the point, I don't think a couple of those kids um, were going to be so beneficial that we they lead us out of it. And, and at the end, I think we actually end up coming out of it better than we would have if we had them. Yeah, but you, I, I, I don't agree with that, Sean, because as I do, well, I'm just going to what I do off. agree with is, <laughs> no, Goddard, Goddard and Wells in their first two seasons wouldn't have made us that much better. But that quality of footballer constantly across 12 years, as opposed to playing Steve Kenner and playing Ben, ben Johnson and all those sorts of you know, players along Timber. the way, Ben Johnson's first quarter against the Bombers, when he had seventeen touches, every 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 dog has his day. But, but you know what I'm saying, yo? Like the, just the class difference. Hey, hey, Brett Johnson, wasn't it? Brett, Brett Johnson. Johnson from Hawthorne. Yeah, he was, okay. he, he was okay. He was he was rubbish. He was slow. He, I'm and telling you, he had seventeen touches in the first quarter against Essendon. I don't care how many touches he had. Fab, he, was slow. Touches. he was fine. I did yeah. I thought he was okay. Or it could have been Jimmy Plunkett instead then. Poor, poor Jimmy. But we were having this conversation the other day. Timbo, Jimmy Plunkett, was he on a TV Brett ad Maxwell. as a kid? Yeah, he was. He was, uh, he was on an ad with Max Walker. But, but was it for like mosquito repellent or something? Yeah, it might have been Aragard or something He like strikes that. me as a sort of kid okay. that would be like the local brand ambassador, like the local Milky Bar kid. He does. He just yeah. strikes me as that guy. He'd be like, yeah, a little freckly redheaded yeah, kid. Yeah. He just looks like the quintessential little Aussie kid. He's sitting out the front of a milk bar. You could set him anywhere. This ad could be he in was the thirties. He was Ginger Meg. He was the personification of Ginger Meg. He doesn't know time. Um, were you done on your little rant there, Timbo? That I completely disagree with. I tuned out. Oh, no, no. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying, from an opportunity cost perspective, having players of the quality of Goddard and Wells for a sustained period of time makes you better. Oh, maybe I'm just at the stage. I'm just at acceptance. May not have necessarily won us a premiership, but but having them in and being able to add planks in your development that if we'd never gone through the salary cap too hard to be able yeah. to start with those two, it, it would have been a good way to start. The, I'll what, say are this. The, what are the five stages of grief? What are they? 
because I'm at acceptance. I'm at the end. I've been at acceptance for a long time. Timbo, you sound like you're still in the middle. You're at like bargaining. You've been at bargaining for 18 years. Yeah, well, just <laughs> you, you do have to remember that I am a guy that's always had a fascination with the draft you do? and young talent, and that's the way that you build. I, you gave me, you, you didn't give me just one golden ticket. You gave me two golden tickets that day. And they took them off us yeah, at like midnight the night before the draft. Yeah, oh. I went to sleep. I went to sleep with pick one and pick two and woke up with nothing. It was it was a, it was a horrendous day. You know what the highlight of that well, whole I, situation was briefly, Fab. Uh, the highlight of that whole thing was after they handed down the the sanctions, and obviously it was the really uh, people in the media still talk about it. It's like long night, ridiculous. They ended up doing the press conference after midnight comfortably, and Ian Collins is sitting there getting ready. He's obviously very prickly. He's getting ready to address the media, and Dimitri, who was operations officer, operations, you know, Steve Hocking at the time, um, standing in the doorway, and Colo shoots him a glance, daggers, and goes, "What are you doing here?" And Dimitri sort of froze, and he goes, "Get out!" And just kicked him, like said, "You get out! We're not fuck off." And I thought, "Oh yeah, I'd probably do the same." I liked it. Okay. Like, what are you doing here? What I will. I would have strangled Ron Evans as well. I would have fucking knocked him out. That I would have done. And now, said, go, go secure spotless another fucking lucrative deal. Going to bridge where Sean's coming from and where Tim and, and Tim's a bit. Whilst they, those two players would have helped us, we as a club were not ready. And the Dennis Pagan, what we, 11 win season shows it. We get those two quality players in. We're not of the mindset to flick the switch and reset with these guys as our key assets. We would still try and shortcut our way through. And I think going through those four years of shit probably holds us in better stead. Well said, Fab. Well said. I take that point. I do agree. (laughs) I think we needed that to be able to transition to the modern era of football. Great. And get on board so this is the way, this is the new business as usual. Speaking, on, of, uh, speaking of leaving the old and looking to the new and we sit here some years later wistfully looking back at the old, in 20, uh, 2005 we obviously leave Princess Park. So there's obviously a few few uh, elements to this. The, the debt incurred as a result of a legend stand, uh, the poor administration and leadership we spoke of to navigate us out of um, the salary cap scandal. The asset we had that should have been the jewel in the crown was our own home ground. And we just didn't leverage it with our competitors. We didn't leverage it with other tenants. We didn't leverage it with the league. We just didn't explain to the league, this is how we get out of it. Hosting more games here, getting tenants to come in. Uh, Telstra Dome at the time absolutely was a problem. I would have said to another club, I would have said to Melbourne, to North Melbourne, to the Western Bulldogs, uh, what's your deal at Telstra Dome? And then whatever number they gave me, I would have said, uh, we'll give you an 80% discount. Because we just need this venue to be a venue. Also, yeah. given the amount that we'd invested in in redeveloping the Spot stadium on. that we did. Spot on. We had to get a return on that investment. And and what's more is, and, and this was the whole thing, that the, the relationship between Carlton and the AFL was dead because because of the, the salary cap element, but also we had a we had a long, long-term deal with the AFL that was going to see us play football at that ground for a long period of time, which justified the spend in the first instance. And the AFL candid, and we should we should have 
your mate, the QC, Marcus, whatever his oh, name Jesus is. Jesus Christ. Should, should have had him. If we had, had Timbo, if we had Marcus court. Clark come in and argue the validity of that contract, we would have ended up owing the AFL money. They would have come out and said, you actually well, owe but us. That's the thing. We, we should have been at the Supreme Court. We should have absolutely bled the AFL for everything that they had once they cancelled that contract underneath it. Because once the contract's in place, if you're not going to make good on it, it's a bit funky, are you, Fabian? Well, and that's the point I make, Tim. You make an excellent point there, is that we needed to go to those other clubs and basically go to the AFL. There were four or five of us using this venue, um, so we need to be handsomely remunerated to leave it if we are to leave it. And then more importantly, there was just no long-term vision. There was no long-term architect within the club who could see the bigger picture. And that's that's the problem. That was the problem with our leadership for a number of years. When the guy at the helm is the guy... When the guy, when the guy at the helm is the guy in charge of the then Telstra, that was an issue. Dome or that was a problem. Stadium. Well, there were some vested interests. You know, well, Collar, you know, Collar had a vested interest in moving us to Telstra. So, and those deals were terrible. Those deals were terrible up until only a couple of years ago for everyone involved. Yeah. So, that speaks to you know, the issue there. So, not only did from a spiritual point of view we leave Princess Park, and it's obviously where we. We called home uh, in a playing sense um, since the birth of the competition. Um, the one saving grace, I suppose, is that unlike Collingwood, who left Victoria Park and Essendon have left Windy Hill, um, etc. You know, St Kilda did leave Moorabbin and they came back. A lot of those clubs you can you can call out as examples. We're still there. There's still a link to the past. There is still a through line from the current generation of Carlton player to every generation of Carlton player at Princess Park, which all the other clubs have lost. So that is perhaps a saving grace. But um, it is naturally a significant moment. It was a terribly emotional uh, occasion on that final game against Melbourne. And um, there is a juncture, there is a fork in the road in, when history is told that if we weather the storm, and, and as Tim says, if we hold the contract and we weather the storm and we use it as an asset to navigate us out of it, where are we now, Twenty, you know, uh, 15 years later? How, how different does the ground look? How different does our do our finances look? We speak about it, Fab. You're going to laugh. I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to mention it again. GMHBA Stadium. You know, I get it. I, I don't don't appreciate your your love it's for the GMHBA. Great stadium. I love it. I don't like necessarily going down there and the people down there, but the stadium itself is beautiful. Too cold. But that's certainly what we needed to to angle for, you know, especially after AFL, once Waverley Park, VFL Park, whatever you want to call it, once it went um, by the way of the dodo, um, we just, Princess Park and its location always should have been relevant. This sounds weird, Tim. I'll put it to you this, this way as Fabian goes for a walk. Um, what if, once again, this is the long-term strategic planning. This is the game. This is the, you know, the, the strategic games in the boardroom. What if you went to the AFL when deals were shithouse and clubs were getting screwed over at Telstra Dome and said, what about you? You were going to own this stadium for a dollar at this stage in 20-odd years' time. What about we use Princess Park as a leverage? So unless you renegotiate these deals, we'll play games, we'll, we'll schedule a couple of games at Princess Park. So unless you give these clubs who are getting screwed over better deals, you'll lose those games, you'll lose out. And then, like I said, the architects and long-term vision, there is a place for a ground like Princess Park in the current climate. But unfortunately, yep, never happened. Um, 
Come 20, 2007, we obviously see a couple of massive moments. Richard Pratt arrives at the club, replacing uh, Graham Smorgan at the behest of Stephen Silvani. And, you know, Smorgan's regime was obviously um, very troubled from the start, took over from Collins, who took over from Elliot. And it was that, you know, um, pass the parcel type thing. The parcel was a bomb. Um, and uh, Pratt arrives, and Fabian spoke about it a bit earlier, and just through his contacts, through his nous, through his character, through his wealth, kind of drags us into the 21st century pretty quickly. You know, Greg Swan comes on board not long after Judd joins, and then all of a sudden there's this air of, you know, modernity about what the Carlton Football Club are doing. We'd hit the draft, we invested in genuine proper blue chip kids for the first time ever and there was this real sense of we are tracking in the right direction and we did and that started when Pratt walked in the door you might remember it you might not but um, Smorgan went on the footy show famously and just pretty much cap in hand said the club is in an awful state and we're close to handing the keys back to the AFL and that was I suppose whether it was intended to do it or just did it by accident um, that got Pratt off off his chair and said, that's not happening. It's Carlton Football Club. And he sort of came to the rescue and a super significant moment um, ultimately in where we are now, really. You know, not everything he did worked, but he certainly set us on the right path. Great. Uh, Then obviously Judd arrives. Judd's very much in the vein of of Williams. That's later in that year. And, um, you know, his signature was a coup for a club rebuilding its identity. It was a, a statement of intent, just like Diesel, you know, was 16 years earlier. And, you know, sort of stoked our ego, stroked our egos a bit at a low ebb, you know, gave the club hope off-field, on-field, and who can argue, won a Brownlow, AFL, uh, PA, MVP, three best and fairest. He won four of his six All-Australians whilst with us and uh, was perhaps the best player to have ever played for us. One of. One, one of. Is he a top ten, Fabian? Yeah, one you're of. in the conversation. You're giving us... He's in the top ten. He's in the top ten. You're giving us a, a ridiculous leg rope like he did with Diesel. He was a top ten player in the competition when he was probably the best player in the competition. I I personally... And we're not turning this into a debate as to who's better, but I, I have Diesel ahead of Juddy, personally. But, um, yeah, no, the arrival of Chris Judd was phenomenal. This I, I remember I was, I was at work with Timbo. And uh, you were in the showers. The you, were str- you were you were washing each other's backs. <laughs> we well, lathering up, and the news came through that uh, someone came in and goes, had, "How's that car park development coming? What are you doing in the showers again? It's a fifth time today." <laughs> but I recall he, he he chose us, but obviously no deal was over the line. He just made his decision. I want to go to Carlton. I want that sweet so coin. Yeah. So. Um, Want to tell no, kids about day. recycling? Good day. But that was exciting, wasn't it? You remember, obviously, on the news, the clips of him touring the clubs and it was very clandestine and the, the classic shots through, you know, gates didn't, and fences. Didn't Melbourne take him through, like, a bunch of portables? Or something? Uh, yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> I, I probably would have skipped that. Because he was a Melbourne supporter. I think he was wanting to be wowed by Melbourne and he's just walked away and gone, well, you guys ain't it. So. <laughs> you guys are... I'm going to give you some feedback. It was not good. <laughs> Some yeah. refurbished, some refurbished classrooms. Just, just well, this that. is where we do our weights, Johnny. Show him the plans. <laughs> just show him the plans and move on. <laughs> um, so that was obviously massive in twenty in two thousand. I keep saying twenty. I'm losing my mind. In two thousand and nine, now Timbo, you'll be. This is in your wheelhouse. You'll like this one. 
very much like the 2000 draft. The 2009 draft is a significant moment because we'd done the hard yards. Slowly but surely over four or five years, we'd regenerated and rebuilt the list to a point where in the following seasons, it would be competitive. We get to the 2009 draft, having traded Brennan Favola, and this is the opportunity. We, we, need to, we need to get some players out of this draft. And But for the trade of Lockie Henderson, who comes in the door, um, we trade pick 11 for Brock McLean. We use pick 12 on Kane Lucas. There's any number of players who go after Kane Lucas, Daniel Talia, Nat Fife, and you sit there and go, it ends up being not quite as disastrous as 2000, but it was going to be the topping, and it ends up once it's again start, not doing it. It's the start of a bad drafting era. So in in a year in isolation, if you go back through all clubs, all clubs have bad years where things just don't work. And you look not only at 2009, but 2010, 2011, it just, there, as you said, Sean, our list was finally at a point where the kids were old enough. We had some genuine superstar talent. People forget Nick Stevens, how good he was. Nick Stevens was there. Juddy was there. Feb was in his prime. Jared White. We need we needed to keep that, you know, feeding it, feeding that list through the draft. And we don't. 2009 is the start of it, and we don't feel the effects until, until yeah. recently, until 2013-14. So, and there was compromised drafts along the way too. And that's, but that's why meant, it's important. You know, even if you did have decent position, yeah. you probably weren't going to get the star anyway. And that's why, that's it's why so we important. had to land. Yeah. yeah. It's the last crack at an we open had to get, draft. Yeah. And they just and as we said, yeah, you, know, you ended up with Kane Lucas, Marcus Davies, Rowan Kerr, and you just sit there and you're going, well, none of them. Really lighten it up. Nothing, they, they, they were all good, good ordinary footballers. Nothing against Rowan yeah, Kerr. Like he's, he's probably a really nice guy and all that kind of stuff. Every so often, he's just one of those that sticks in the mind because you know you go out and watch the Northern Blues and the like. And every so often, Dad will <laughs> mention to himself when we're talking about you know mediocre Carlton players. Who was that guy with the tattoo of the prawn? You know, he's Rowan Kerr. He goes, fucking. Just brilliant, the things you latch on to. Um, after 2009, we hadn't yet uh, hit the iceberg. We were sailing blissfully through the night towards it, though. We did have an incursion into really good territory, and that culminated in 2011, our best season since 2001 by some distance. We had 14 wins. We won nine of those games by five or more goals. We won six of them um, by 10 or more goals. So we, we had some fucking big wins. Played some excellent footy, finished fifth, uh, won our first final since 2001, and we sat inside the Comprehensively. top Comprehensively. Yes, and we sat inside the top four on uh, the conclusion of 19 rounds of the season. So, in the end, we, we struggled against the big boys. You know, we had some great wins, though. We, we struggled to really test the top, we, top tier of the ladder. We struggled against Collingwood. Collingwood were a very good side that year. All time. Um, and obviously, play off in a grand final. Hawthorne, Hawthorne embarrassed us. Like yeah, we were nowhere yeah. near Hawthorne. But it's one of those things. If you can avoid, we could beat Geelong. We could always beat Geelong at the MCG. MCG. Yeah. We get it. We get him at the Telstra Dome or whatever it was then. And it was. We played so well, and it was a heartbreaking loss. That we was the Robbie Warnock night. Yeah, but there was yeah, another one. Down, Robbie. Another one. A few years 
after or a year after, Joel Selwood kicks one either on the siren or near the siren Juddy's to goal. put him in front. So it's if we could get through the West Coast game, and yeah, don't worry about you know what was it Jeffy Garlett should have had a free kick or something like Andrew like, Walker, yeah, and, Andrew Walker, Andrew Walker. If it's not like Tim remembers. Luck, not like Tim's been holding that. on to it. Ah, exactly right. He wakes up in a cold sweat most nights. Goes fucking holding. We were, we were missing Cruiser. Wait. Um, wait. Gibbs. Gibbs, uh, Gibbs, Gibbs did his AC. If we if if we had if we had a little bit of luck with that, we get through West Coast. Well, Lance, we did his knee on uh, on the um, Megan Gale treadmill. <laughs> Didn't um, Brett Thornton was playing Barrett. really, really well. Didn't I uh, didn't Thornton get knocked out or yep. Yep. he landed on his face just before half time? Yeah. He was playing really well. So we get a, a little bit of luck. Honestly, we take Geelong the next week at the G. I know that sounds arrogant. We just it does the team that eventually goes on and wins it. But I think we had Geelong's measure, especially on the wider grounds. On the smaller ground at Telford Dome, they, they kept with us and their class and experience. Gave him that little bit of an edge, but as soon as we got him on the MCG, every time we took him, then we're in a grand final against Collingwood, and they had our measure. They comfortably had our measure, but as Sean will be at pains to say, he always says it. What three games later in 2012, we smack them by 10 goals on a Friday night. We annihilate them. So it was. It was. It was a great. Season and it's a season that only Carlton fans can look back and go. I remember it. We were good. Everything. It's one of those ones you don't win the premiership. Only one team out of the eighteen wins it. But other teams have good years. We had a real good year, and dickheads like Caroline Wilson will never remember the twenty eleven season. No, because they Fabian, just won't do it. Fabian, they, we've been shit for twenty years. We've never been good. We've been awful for twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I can handle when external people say it, but when Supposed fans of the and I've got a few mates on the text and whatever. And like, and they're supposed to be Carlton fans. I'm like, you're a dickhead. Just throw them in the bin. Don't talk to them. Uh, next off the cap of the rank is the 2012 postseason. Obviously, we had a rough 2012. Uh, won the first three games, um, and then ructions formed. Obviously, we have suffered some injuries. Rats is ultimately Premiership let go. Favorites. We were. Rats is let go. Mix board in. Um, look, I've said it before. I supported the decision at the time, and even with the benefit of hindsight, me, me too. I understand why it was made. It didn't work out. But Mick, he was forced out at a year off. He was forced out at Collingwood, having won a flag. And then the next year, he wins 23 of 26 matches and loses. The, he's, like, he wasn't done. But unfortunately... Were they up? They were, they were up at three-quarter time. They were. But then unfortunately... They were. He, Tommy Hawkins took over in the last quarter. He comes to and, us. And, and I love Mix. Didn't Mick say... Um, Swanee won the brown line. And when they were asking him, he should have made this move, that move, he goes, well, I didn't expect the Brownlow medalist not to touch the ball in the last quarter. <laughs> he went out swinging, Mick. He went yeah. out swinging. Um, but Get look, out. Mick, we've spoken about it once again. He came to the club. Our TPP was appalling. Uh, we had no flexibility with any contracts. We delisted and then drafted the minimum of three players at season then because of that. How much you have thought? This is, imagine you were one of the three players that we delisted at the end of 2012. You must have been the only three players out of contract. Like, it mustn't have been anyone else out of contract because we basically, Mick said we couldn't do anything. We couldn't bring anyone in. We had to make the minimum, like, list changes because we actually couldn't do anything. So, yeah. and, this, and this stems back to the 2009 draft and the health of our list and the way we managed our list. 
now gets us into the position like you're saying, Sean, we're mixed there and he can't do anything. He does, look, he does alienate certain fan favourites, but I'll, oh, shit, I, I, yeah. I will argue that with the exception of Eddie Betts, we'd seen, of those guys, we'd seen their best footy and their best footy wasn't good enough to get us past a semi-final. In hindsight, this is going to sound weird because, uh, look, his, his ending at the club was, was great. He became a bit of a fan favourite cult hero. But Nick if I had my time over again, it's, it's not the Eddie Betts departure. It's bringing in Dale Thomas and not taking the, what is it, pick, early pick compensation. But what, yeah, I, I wonder what we would have gotten for I, Betts. Though. I reckon we got a third rounder. You probably well, we, you probably get an end of first rounder because he was getting paid six hundred. Yeah. You got nothing for Jared. Well, it's it's nothing. Yeah, but according to the AFL, he was worth nothing. Yeah, but Tim, that still annoys me. It should have been a fourth rounder. Even if else. it's a even if it's a seventh rounder, it's it's an acknowledgement <laughs> that the bloke. It's, it's an acknowledgement that you've lost a player, and yeah. he is worth something. I yep. don't disagree. No uh, next cab off the rank, 2013 final series. A super up and down year for us. We still played some good footy. We started 0-3. We got to 6-4. and We end up finishing 11-11. Uh, obviously make the eight based on Essendon's expulsion. Um, the last round win against Port Adelaide is a modern classic. Absolutely superb win. Great, um, great game. Absolutely phenomenal performance over there to win when we had to. We looked down and out, rallied back. Um, and then the final itself, the elimination final, you know, arguably the biggest win um, that we've had in this century, really. A good one. <laughs> yeah, no. Awesome. We've, we've done it. We've done it to death. It was just a great, one of the great days as a Carlton supporter. And watch our, uh, watch our uh, rewatch. It's on YouTube. We, um, exactly. But I know people will say, you know, you know, we finished ninth. We don't go on absolutely do anything. But clubs like the Bulldogs, Clubs like St Kilda, who've got, you know, together have less than a handful of premierships. They look to big games, big moments. This is a final, you know, nearly 100,000 fans, and it was a game for the ages. It's one of the all-time great games. Is, where is it in the 50 for 50, the Foxtel? Is it even on there? I don't know. Juddy's performance no, I don't, I don't outstanding. I, I reckon it carries a lot more gravitas than... Experts would give it credit for because it was, and, and maybe it's under cards because it takes something away from it. But it, it, it had such such a backstory behind it and such quirks about how we got there. And and we were we were down and out. We were done. And uh, I mean, we weren't because you could sort of see we hadn't played our best footy yet, and you know, hadn't put our best foot forward. But um, once we came and we got and momentum in footy is a beautiful thing. Um, I, I still remember there was a final where Richmond beat Essendon and, and Richmond launched off the back of a Matty Knight's goal and um, yeah, the crowd got into it and yeah, and, and Essendon just stopped and Richmond ran all over the top of them and the crowd went absolutely bananas and I reckon our 2013 was pretty similar really to that sort of a game. Absolutely. Uh, the next significant moment for us in the AFL era comes at the 2013 draft and more specifically when we're on the clock at pick 13. It was spoken about quite recently by Matty Rendell, who said that McCollum would pass on this guy twice and wouldn't have happened once if they could go back and do it all again. Um, we come from an era where we couldn't draft really well. You know, we, we really struggled to make picks stick. 
really outside the first couple. If we weren't picking outside the top three or four, we were really battling. And at pick 13, we pick a guy who is, um, he'll be a club legend, Paddy Cripps. Absolutely enormous moment for the footy club to get that pick so right at, in the top 10. I think he's a top 50 player. Um, To get that pick so right at that point in time, um, I shudder to think what the last couple of years would have looked like without Paddy Cripps, the player and the captain, the leader. Um, He's obviously a two-time All-Australian, three-time best and fairest winner, AFL PA MVP. Uh, One of only, is it four Carlton players to win that award? So, look, he's just an absolute superstar and, and and a pick that, at the time, I remember looking at it going, oh, yeah, okay, well, don't know much about this guy. Fab wrote him off after one game. Back in 2014. Yeah, the game, the game against Melbourne, I saw him. He was in a contest and one of the Melbourne blokes ran away from him. It looked like he was running in quicksand. And I turned to the bloke I was game with and I said, JK, this guy's, no, we've missed it here. <laughs> this guy's a dud. That's unlike Tim to write a guy off, uh, unlike Tim, is it Fab? Write a guy off really quickly, just write a guy off sight unseen, basically. You get the pen out. You put fucking lines through guys' names after one contest. Who, who have I put? Lockie O'Brien. Did I put it through Lockie O'Brien? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But I I retracted that. (laughs) You got out the white paper, white out. That was no, no. That was in. I I always put it in in pencil. I might have put. I might have put. I might have put plows in. in, That you've buried buried plowmen so often. You're working at the cemetery. It's ridiculous how often you've fucking piled (laughs) onto him. Um, but yeah, look, absolutely superb. He's just the perfect man for modern Carlton and the perfect player at the perfect time for us. So uh, 2013 pick 13 is a significant moment. Um, we spoke about it a little bit earlier in the in the lead-off to the show, the 2015 draft, super significant moment. If this build takes us where we hope it will, um, that's the night it starts. Notionally, on paper at least, we've got five best 22 players on the night, built our spine long-term, Um you know, David Cunningham's obviously a bit of a wait-and-see question mark. On, on talent, he's in there, but he just needs to uh, obviously have a bit of belief in himself. But this is the night for me. The foundations are built for whatever comes next. Agreed. Completely agree. Excellent. Yep. I like it when Timbo just, he just gives you the nod. He goes, yeah. After quarrelling with me earlier over um, Brennan Goddard and Daniel Wells, it's good to get some positive feedback. Uh, secondly or second to last uh, 2017 um, we become one of the inaugural clubs of the AFLW and uh, you know Timbo and I and I don't know about Fabian he never talks about it but Timbo and I are big big fans of a league of their own so um, in much the same way this sort of strikes a chord I'm a a huge fan of Dottie and Dottie and the girls no massive fit love it great but yeah look that is super important um, really formative sort of uh, moment for the club um, to be one of the first teams. And then more importantly than that, after a little bit of a rocky start, um, they've actually established themselves and rebuilt the the women's program in, in short order to be genuinely good, to be a genuinely strong team that should be strong um, for the foreseeable future. It's a real credit to the way they've built it. But you know, naturally that first night against Collingwood was a great look. Packed to the rafters. Can't get a definitive number how many people in the crowd, but Stories uh, vary. It's, what it's, it's now it's now thirty five thousand. Whatever 35, the whatever the number is, Fab, they were well in excess of the fire code. Um, so hope, thank God, the garnered stand didn't uh, catch a light. Would have been a fucking <laughs> would have been an absolute I'm gonna, disaster. I'm going to go. I'm going to go as far as to say, if not specifically half, but if we had better coaching, you know, yeah. early years, yep. 
I think we 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 had a lift to win a flag. Particularly early, there was the opportunity to snatch a flag real early when it was for you know less teams um, and talent identification wasn't great and there were a couple of girls playing who were you know converts or more girls that were converts from other sports. It's becoming very very quickly far more specialised. But uh, look, that was massive. And then the grand final last year with the big crowd at the Adelaide Oval to be a part of that movement. Um, the club obviously is very proud of it and, and should be. So that's clearly a significant moment in this AFL era. Whilst we made the grand final last year and it was obviously our best season, I reckon we, whilst we didn't start as good this year, we were on our way, I felt, to something special. Absolutely. I agree. Absolutely. And we were set. been taken away. Um, our last two games, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, were Frio and North, who were ideal opponents. Notion, once again, notionally, the, the two other you know, strongest teams in the competition, um, and it would have been a really good litmus test. If you win one or both of those games, you're sitting there going, we're, we're, a, real, we're a massive share. It's yours to lose, almost. Yeah, um, and then lastly, 2019, obviously, was a big year. Brendan Bolton uh, exits stage left. David Teague enters stage right. Um, and we hopefully begin a new era. What we saw from Tigi in the last part of the year was encouraging in the sense we spoke about the 66-game rebuild earlier, and we won more games in half a season under David Teague than we had in the previous two-and-a-bit seasons under Brendan Bolton. Um, they're just, that's, I don't mean to be mean or sound harsh, but they're just raw numbers, um, and you can't argue with those. So that was naturally significant whenever you lose a coach, um, and then when you start to see a little bit of fruit you know, come out of that hard work of four or five years earlier. Um, you know, we ended the season with a pretty good taste in our mouths, thinking, geez, 2020 shapes has been really exciting. Sadly, that's been put on pause, but yeah, clearly a, a really significant moment that, fingers crossed, we look back on in a couple of years' time as the right move. Great. Do you concur, Fab? A lot. I do concur. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 to me, the second half of last year shows when you look at it, when you want to judge this 66-game rebuild, look at what the list can do on the back half of last year. He hasn't even had yeah. our best list. He hasn't had our best team. No. And I, and I love how now all in the off-season, they were ripe to pump us up because, you know, it, it, it's a good, good news story. We played one game against Richmond and pushed them. And we, we, we did have patches where we were a bit bad, but... Are you judging the 66-game rebuild on what we produced in an empty stadium against Richmond four weeks ago? Yes, they are. It's just, yeah, it's ludicrous. Like they are, they're judging it. But I, I still go back to last season. We played a game against Collingwood at the MCG, and we were massively underdone with a lot of players out. We had to blood Liam Stocker because we had nobody playing off a halfback flank for us at all. Um, they were expected to win and win comfortably. And you're looking at a side that has been beaten by a kick in the shadows of the end of the game by Dom Sheed from, from winning a premiership the year before. And they were, you know, but for one inside 50 where Shane Mumford didn't quite hold up or something like that, they kicked goal. They're in a grand final against Richmond and would have, would have, you know, handled themselves, acquitted themselves a whole lot better than what GWS ultimately did. That's the quality of team we're playing against. And, you know, on a, you know, we, we really, put our best foot forward and we sort of showed that we could compete, albeit still with a very young, underdone side. And it's games five. like that that you just sit there and you're going, when we five bad together minutes. and we play well, yeah. It was five bad minutes right at the end of the game and they, 
Yep. Got a, got a bit of a run on, and the, mem- the momentum just shifted just at the wrong time. If it happens 15 minutes earlier, we may have rode it out. Yeah. And then yep. have it swung back the other way. But It's always so important. It's always down as a loss, but you just sit there and you're going, it really just gave you it gave you cause to 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 know that we're on the right tram, we're improving, and you just had to wait, and, and it's coming. Well, in closing, it, it sort of it underlines the point you made earlier, Tim, and Fab made it as well with regard to the, the people in the media look at the wins and loss, and they like you said, they see that as a loss. And for them who might have done the game for radio or might have written a column in The Sun about it, they forget about the performance pretty quickly. They forget about the yeah. context of the performance even quicker. And then, oh, it's just another loss. They go, oh, so Collingwood again. That's, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, you got to control all the factors. But as you say, on the day or the following morning, everything that you would have read was that was a really valiant, yeah. gallant effort by the Carlton Football Club. And so they see it, they recognise it, but they choose to ignore it when it comes to the hot take that they want to make nine months later because, oh, fuck, there's no footy. I've got to do some thinking on my own. What will I do? Let's kick Carlton. Let's pot Carlton. That's know, always a it, winner. It, yeah, if, if they if they genuinely knew football, they'd be able to find something positive here if they wanted to write it. But they don't want to write it, and that's fine. You know, that's what we that's why we're here. That's why we're here. <laughs> uh, well, I'll kick off. We'll do our uh, top three each in terms of the. Are we going to do it like three, two, one votes, or are we going to do? We've got to count up, don't we? We've got to count from three to one. So I'll kick three, off. Three, two, one. I'll kick off with my number three. So my third most important moment of the. AFL era for the Carlton Football Club. I'm scaling through here. I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with picking picking Paddy Cripps at pick thirteen. I just think that for where we want to go, um, and the player that he has become and will continue to evolve into, um, it's just such an important step for us. In years to come, it'll be more and more significant. Yeah. As as we grow and develop as a club, at, do I go with my number? You go, Fab. Yeah. At my number three, I've got 2015. I think it signals the start of this is where we're going and we don't give a shit about any outside outside noise. We're going forward and it's the start. I think the drafting in that year was phenomenal. I think the five players we took are all playing potentially in our best 22. Um, but regardless of that, I think from a mindset point of view, We've just gone, no, we're going, this is what we're doing, and we're going forward. So that's at number three for me. Tim, flag on the hill kind of stuff, isn't it, baby? Yep, yep. Uh, my number three was Dick Pratt, White Knight. Yep. Um, obviously, again, we'd, we'd been through the, the, the dark days. We needed to um, to reset, and we, we obviously used that, uh, that term nearly a decade later. But it was it was the recognition of we've just been doing it wrong for too long. Um, you know, the modern modern era of football uh, of football has come, and it's here to stay. And we're not on board, and we've got to start changing something. And and the you know they they reached out to to Dick and and he he pretty much gave us the open checkbook and said, what do you need? Put the things in place. Let's let's drive this club forward now. It's thirteen years ago. Has it? You know, has it fall fruit yet? No, it hasn't. But I think we're very, very well placed because of the influence that he had at that stage um, to 
move forward as a as a superpower of the team uh, of the league again. And once upon a time, that didn't look like it was going to happen. So I, I still think that's important. Well, that's a beautiful segue, Tim, because um, that's my number two. So my number two is Dick <laughs> Pratt um, arriving at the club again. And, and I mentioned it earlier when we spoke about it, that um, he just sort of, what he was able to do with that influence and his contacts and his money was drag us into the AFL. Yep. It was sort of the last team to well, arrive in it, and he, he kind of brought us into it. So that's why it's super important. What's your number two, Fab? Uh, the 2011 season. Wow, last... that's really high. <laughs> it's really... That, that, it's, the, it's the last time it was it felt normal I need to ask to you a question. Team. Earlier on this record, you, go, you, you, go said, to work. you said that Greg Williams yep. was a, oh, maybe a top yep. 10 player in the competition. And now you're saying at, that at the, the 2011 season is the second most significant moment of the AFL era. The Carlton Football Club. It's it's it's. A, it, it's Are you it's, having a stroke? I'm just going to kind of zoom in on you. The, <laughs> it's the first time in a very long time where it was normal for us to be a good club. We were consider we considered ourselves a good club. Others considered us a good club. We played good football. Everything felt normal. Look, it's your and countdown. It's Everyone. your countdown. But like, yeah, that's well. It's, that's got way too high. Shot. It's way too high. Yep. You've jumped at Blaine Bokhorst in the first, you know, with the early part of the first round. I mean, that was the late part of the first round. Because yeah, Dodoro blinked. You, you could have had him for a rookie spot, but you've jumped at him at pick 19. Um, what do you got there, yep. Timbo, at uh, number two? I, I had the salary cap saga at two. Uh, obviously a massive story in the fabric of the AFL Football Club, but it was probably more reflective of a 20-year attitude mm. at, at Carlton. It was old-school football. It was old-school attitudes. Um, and while it gutted me at the time and robbed us of two phenomenal footballers that would have taken us a long way forward into the future, Sean, um, it, it, again, it was it was ultimately, it was it was the death of the old Carlton Football Club and, and the old Carlton attitudes, which needed to happen. Um, I didn't like the way that it happened. There'd be it, it would have been nicer if we had made that transition in a different way. Um, Natural evolution. Probably, yeah, it was, but it was yeah. the slap in the face that we needed as a football club to say, "Come on, guys, the game's changed. Get on board." So dark days, and I've got I've still got very bad memories of it all. But it was a significant moment in the AFL era. Totally understand. And look, I it isn't for me. It's not my number one because I think you know, time heals all wounds. And whilst at the time it's a kick in the teeth and whatnot, you kind of, you, as you move on from it, like we explained earlier, you move on from it and you go, look, at the time it was bad, but like we use the analogy, you're either going off the edge of the cliff or sailing toward the iceberg anyway. It's like, yeah, that hastened our descent, but it was coming. So uh, for yep. me, number one yep. is the 94 final series. Um, obviously culminates all that happened as a result of 93 and 94 culminates in the club's best season ever. And if we don't suffer that embarrassment against Melbourne and the next week against Geelong, um, we might not necessarily win the 94 flag and we might not necessarily front up the next year with the resolve to win and do what they did in 95. So uh, obviously our last, our most recent premiership, I think is a direct result of what happened um in round 24, the qualifying final and the semi-final of 1994. Well, using that as a segue, my number one is the 1995 season. It's the most significant moment. It's our last premiership. And it, it probably, as you were saying, Sean, it, 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 it's a flow-on effect from the years that precede it. But um, 
it has to be to me the most significant moment in the AFL era, our only premiership. I've had a bit each way. I can kind of claim I'm sort of sort of straddling both that one and my one. Love it. Yeah. What about you, Timbo? Number one. Yeah, look, I'm the same. 1995. It just has to be. I was 19 years of age. It was probably at the peak of my football watching. We'd been summer of ten to see. That the, the team developed from sort of 1991 through. Um, I, I take your point about 94 and, and, and the ills and the pain that led to, you know, the revolution, you know, you know the, the revolution in the way that Parker looked at his football and the way that he managed his people, but the way that the players took ownership of the way that they wanted to go about it. Um, and, and I think it really, it, it was sort of like a, football democracy type um, arrangement, but it was seriously good football, seriously good football people all banding together and and, um, and having the ultimate success. And again, as a 19-year-old kid, just wanting to see us be great again, to be able to celebrate and enjoy it and, and have that as, as your day, your, your, your memory of your youth. Terrific day and love to be able to relive it again. You had one eye on... Uh... kids to be able to you know, live through that sort of stuff too. Absolutely. You had one eye on Atlanta at the time, Timbo, as you were down at the Aqua Arena. Very much so in those days. I had stars in my eyes and I was sure I was uh, destined for greatness. You were walking up to um, a photo. But I looked down and go, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Your Rocky style um, had a photo of Daniel Kowalski on the mirror. You went up to it and tore it off. <laughs> Wrong distance, but yeah, why not? Let's so, run with that. That was when the coach came in and said, "Tim, he's not your he's not your rival. Just stop focusing on Daniel Kowalski." Um, <laughs> but no, look, that's great. Tim, uh, Tim had a picture of Tatiana Grigorieva on the on the mirror. On, totally different sport. Uh, that was totally a totally different, different Olympics. Where was Tatiana? No, that was ninety six. She was two thousand. No, she was two thousand. She she vaulted on the night that Kathy won her gold medal. That jump and jive to one of the greatest nights of track and field ever. Was Jump and Jai in on that night? Was he another night? Uh, he might have been that night, actually. I just love the story of Jump and Jai. He was smoking darts and having takeaway pizzas and then ends up winning a silver medal yeah. at the Olympics. It's extraordinary. And he was probably stiff enough to win gold. Yeah, so. it was unbelievable. Was that um, Carl Lewis? No, who no, was it? Carl retired. No, who was it? Um, he was beaten. Uh, Mike Powell. Was it? I thought it was one of those big, big name... It wasn't Carl Lewis because he was, as you said, he was old. I've got my, my names mixed up. I thought it was like, you would know better than I. I'm not sure why I'm arguing. It's like arguing Olympic athletics with fucking Bruce McAvaney. Bruce, are you sure? Are you sure that he won that one? Are you sure that he won the 800? And anything, Tim? Ivan Pedroso from Cuba. Fucking never heard of him. Oh, yeah. well, I, I had, and... I've got my years uh, mixed up extraordinarily. Yeah, he won it jumping. Oh no, he ju- won it jumping eight thirty-two. That's a huge gap. That's enormous. Qualifying in the final. In the final, Pedroso. What is going on here? In the final, Pedroso jumps eight fifty-five. Did his last jump. Up until then, Farina had jumped 8.49 and was leading the finish. So he was going into the final round and he would have had... 
<laughs> Fabian's just shaking his head. Timbo, do you want to revise your um, most significant moments of the AFL era to include Pedroso's gold medal winning chump? Well, it's not, but... <laughs> <laughs> I just want to revise 95 Premiership. We'll bump everyone back one. And uh, <laughs> a Cuban man take, taking gold home to Fidel. Who comes number one in the countdown? <laughs> On Fidel. Um, well, excellent, guys. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, those who are listening, please feel free to um, get in touch with us with your most significant moments of the AFL era. They can be obviously one from our list or you can come up with one of your own. Um but uh, we'll obviously try to go live again next week. We should have any issues. It seems like it's just a bit of a glitch in the back end of the of the host, really. It's still there. I've, I've had a quick look, and it's sort of the problems are still, you know, what they were a couple of hours ago. So it's obviously just a gremlin on that end. Because um, like Fabian and I tested it briefly yesterday and or the day before, yep. and it was fine, and we just couldn't do it today for some fine. reason. So um, we look forward they to trans- wet. <laughs> Can't allow the wet gremlins to get wet. Um, but no look for me Sean Peter thank you so so much for listening Um, we look forward to catching you again next week of course Faba Ganoush has been here stay home stay safe I want you to stay home like you said yes you look like a murderer come across you in the street (laughs) Uh, and of course Tim Davis Dr Davis he gave us one of the great rundowns of uh, a patella knee injury I've ever heard earlier in the pod you could have sworn he spent four to five years at medical school but hasn't spent a day, but uh, he's absolutely extraordinary. Dr. Davis, thank you very much again for your time. Always a pleasure, Sean. Always a pleasure. You want to know anything medical, just ask me. I'll give you an answer. It might not be right. Catching you next week. Be good, boys. Stay well. See you later.